You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. I think it would be pretty difficult to amaze Jesus, to, to wow him in some way. Uh, for one thing, he's Jesus, right? He's, he is the eternal son of God who's seen it all. Like the most distant galaxy is just as familiar to Jesus as my own backyard is to me. The, the deepest ocean holds no mystery to him. The, 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 very, the very mystery of wisdom and knowledge are all hidden in him, it says in Colossians. He's God. But he's also the perfect human who, who's never sinned or acted selfishly or done or said or thought anything contrary to the will of God. So how do you amaze a guy like that? By giving a bunch of money? by not sinning so much? Like, what would it take to wow him? I think it'd be pretty difficult. And in fact, it would be pretty difficult. There are actually only two times in the Bible where it says that Jesus was amazed. There's lots of references to people being amazed by him, by his power, by his healing, by his wisdom, by his teaching. But only twice does the Bible say that Jesus was amazed by someone else. The first is in Mark chapter 6 when Jesus is teaching in his hometown of Nazareth and the people reject him. We looked at this story in Luke's account a couple weeks ago. But in Mark chapter 6, verse 6, it says, he was amazed at their lack of faith. The second instance of Jesus being amazed is our story today where Jesus is amazed not by someone's lack of faith, but by their faith. So the only two moments in Jesus' ministry that made him go, wow, that like stopped him in his tracks and made him marvel, the only two moments had to do with either faith or lack of faith. So apparently faith is pretty important to Jesus. Our sermon series uh, in Luke is entitled Good News for Everyone because Luke's gospel shows us that the Son of Man came to seek and to save every kind of person, rich and, and, and poor, Jew and Gentile, insider, outcast. He, he came to save all kinds of people and if, if, if that's true, then the question is, how do we access that salvation? Like, how do we get it? How do we access that good news so that it's real to us in a personal way? And the Bible says, the answer to that question is, by faith, by faith. The way we come to Jesus is by faith, which raises the question, what is faith? It's kind of a nebulous term in our day. It's kind of fuzzy, it's kind of subjective. A lot of times the idea of faith is linked only to religion and spirituality. Like someone might say, well, he's a person of faith or she's a person of faith. But I want to suggest that every person is a person of faith because every person believes in something. Every person trusts in something. Every person stakes their life on something. Even not believing in God is an act of faith. Everyone leans into something in order to make sense of life, in order to live life. 
So what does the Bible mean when it talks about faith? What kind of faith amazes Jesus? In our story today, there are three characters who speak. The Jewish elders speak, the centurion speaks, and Jesus speaks. And all of their words teach us something about faith, either what it is or what it isn't. So let's look first at, at what the Jewish elders say um, in this text. They have a misunderstanding of faith. Look, at, look back at Luke 7. It's on page 838 in the, in the Bible in the pews. If you, if you don't have a Bible and want to turn there, 838. Uh, look at Luke 7. You'll notice that verse 1 in Luke 7 tells us that Jesus has just wrapped up some teaching. He's just finished the, the, his, the famous Sermon on the Plain in, in Luke chapter uh, 6. It has a lot of the same teachings that, that were in the Sermon on the Mount in, in Matthew's account. And after he finished the sermon, he went to Capernaum, which was a town that was sort of a home base for Jesus when he was ministering in the region of Galilee. And, and there uh, in, in Capernaum was a centurion uh, because Galilee was occupied by the Romans, right? So every town had Roman soldiers there as peacekeepers and, and when necessary as enforcers. And a centurion was in command of 100 men. And I want to be completely honest with you. I was this week years old when it finally dawned on me that that's why they're called centurions. Because a hundred, like century. I mean, honestly, <laughs> I never, I'm real slow about things. I have hours of seminary under my belt, but somehow I missed that. I'm learning new things in God's word, right? I learned that this week. That's not the point of this passage, but I learned it, all right? So let's get back to it. The centurion had a servant who was sick. Uh, he was near dying. And what's remarkable, uh, remarkable about this story is that the centurion actually cares about his servant in, in a personal way. Verse two says the servant was highly valued by him. And he was precious to him. The centurion saw his servant as a person and he desperately wanted to help him, but he didn't know what to do because he's a soldier. He's not a doctor. So what do I do? Look at verse three. Luke seven, verse three. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him some elders of the Jews there in that town asking Jesus to come and to heal his servants. So obviously, word about Jesus had gotten around. There's a Jewish preacher going around Galilee, healing people, preaching about the kingdom of God. And you know, apparently he's pretty powerful. Apparently he's got a, some kind of unique connection with God. Uh, and, and so the centurion thinks, I'll ask the Jewish leaders to go and make contact with this man for me because they understand him better than I do. They know his theology, they know his customs. And so already we see the humility of the centurion. He was the soldier in charge of the town. He could have just ordered Jesus to come to him, but instead he sent a delegation of Jewish leaders to, to go and make a request of Jesus. What's crazy is that the Jewish leaders actually do it, right? For some reason they decided to help this Gentile occupier whom they probably should have hated. And their reasons become clear in the next two verses. Look at verses four and five. Luke seven, verse four. And when the Jewish elders 
came to Jesus. They pleaded with Jesus earnestly saying, the centurion is worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation and he is the one who built our synagogue. So obviously the centurion is not just a compassionate man who cares about his servant. He's also a wealthy man, a generous man. He, he financed the construction of the synagogue in, in Capernaum. The Jews are like, we had a capital campaign to build a new church and we had one donor. It was this guy, right? this, this Gentile soldier. So there's probably some self-interest in the request to Jesus. They're probably like, hey, help us out here. We're trying to keep this big donor happy. <laughs> we, we need to hold on to his support. Can you help us, Jesus? But what's really noteworthy is how their belief system is revealed in their request. Look at what they say in verse four and five. They say the centurion is worthy to have you do this for him. He deserves for you to do this, Jesus, to do what he asks because he loves our people. He built our church. Obviously, he's a kind man, a good man, a pious man. He deserves this. In one sense, the Jewish elders believe in Jesus, don't they? Like, they know he has power. They know he can help. They believe that. But their faith, the thing they're trusting in, is in the worthiness of the centurion. That's what they're trusting in. Like, he, they're saying he's good enough to be helped by you, Jesus. They're, they're leaning into the, the centurion's goodness rather than leaning into the goodness of Jesus. The basis for the request to Jesus is the worthiness of the centurion because that's how they think about their own relationship with God. Like, am I good enough to merit God's favor, God's blessing? Am I good enough to have God's love in, toward me in my life? It's a transactional view of faith. I do good things, and Jesus rewards me. I avoid doing bad things, and Jesus blesses me. And in that case, it's my virtue that saves me. If I'm good enough, I'll deserve God's blessing. If I'm good enough, I'll deserve salvation. And you know what this way of thinking does? It puts the good person in command rather than putting Jesus in command. It puts God in debt to us as if he owes us something. So the Jewish elders are not trusting Jesus, they're using Jesus, aren't they? It's a flawed view of faith. And I want, to just, I want to just say this, as Christians, it is so easy to slip into this flawed view of faith, even in subtle ways. Even if, we, if you asked us on a theology quiz, do we believe that? We would say no, but it's easy to slip into it. Like maybe we don't spend time with Jesus or pray or pursue him or come to church or go to GC because we've blown it in some way and we feel bad and we don't feel like we can be around Jesus. Or, or maybe we keep a mental scorecard of our good works versus our sins, and we assume that if there's more on the positive side of the ledger, God will bless us. If there's more on the negative side of the ledger, God will punish us. Or maybe we subtly compare ourselves to others spiritually, and when it seems that we're more outwardly righteous than someone else, we feel pretty good about ourselves. And if it seems like someone is more spiritual than us, it kind of bums us out. When we live like that, our faith is not in Jesus, right? Our faith is in ourselves, in our own worthiness. The Jewish elders show us a flawed view of faith, a wrong view of faith. 
But the centurion also shows us something about faith. Let's look at what he says. Look at verse six and seven. What does he teach us about faith? Verse six, and Jesus went with them for some reason. I don't know, he obviously knows that they kind of have a wrong view of what he's come to do, Uh, but he goes with them. I don't know if he's curious. I don't know if he thinks, well, I see something in this centurion. He may just be saying, I want you to know that I'm here to bring good news to all kinds of people. I'll even go to a Gentile oppressor, uh, an occupier, a soldier. And so he goes with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion's house, the, the centurion sent friends. So he sends another delegation out to meet Jesus. He doesn't go out to meet him himself, uh, but he gives them the words to say to Jesus, and these are his words in quotes. Lord, which is a, a, a title of honor, a title of submission. Lord, do not trouble yourself. I am not worthy. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> Their assessment of him was he is worthy. His assessment is I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word. Don't you love that? But say the word, Jesus, and my servant will be healed. In these two little verses, the centurion, I think, gives the perfect diagram of what Christian faith is. Christian faith has a right view of self and a right view of Jesus. A right view of self, I'm not worthy. A right view of Jesus, but say the word. Say the word, Jesus, because you're the one with all the authority, the power, the love, the goodness, the grace. Say the word. Look at how the centurion views himself. The Jewish leaders had had already presented his worthiness resume to Jesus, but he says, I'm not worthy. That's his view of himself. And I don't think he's being self-deprecating. I don't think he's being falsely humble. I think he's being truly humble because he knows himself. And he's honest about who he is. He's like, I have got deep-seated flaws. I've got recurring sin patterns that I know about. I've got sin that I don't even know about. I've hurt people with my words and with my actions. I've done good things for selfish reasons. I've put other people down and lifted myself up. I've forgotten God, neglected God, rebelled against God. I've been ungrateful. I've been violent. I've been angry. I've had dark thoughts. I've wished ill will on others. I've lusted after pleasure and power and pride. I've coveted things that belong to others. I'm not worthy. He knows himself and he's honest about it. It's not that he hasn't done good things or lived in virtuous ways. I think he was probably a good moral man. It's just that when he's confronted with the holiness of God in the person of Jesus, he recognizes his unworthiness. It reminds me of John the Baptist in Luke chapter three, when John the Baptist says, I'm not worthy to untie the straps of Jesus's sandals. Or when Peter witnesses the power of Jesus in Luke chapter five, You know what Peter says? He says, go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. See, John the Baptist and Peter were pretty worthy guys. You wanna be like them. And yet, in the presence of Jesus and compared to Jesus, they're like, I'm not worthy. 
I think one of the real miracles in this story today is that a wealthy, powerful, well-known Roman soldier sees himself as unworthy in the presence of a poor Jewish itinerant preacher from Podoc, Nazareth. He sees something about Jesus and he sees Jesus with eyes of faith. What is his view of Jesus? His view of Jesus is, Lord, just say the word and it'll be done. Like Jesus, all you gotta do is speak it and it'll be true. He recognizes the authority of Jesus and he of all people understands how authority works. In fact, he gives an example. He illustrates it from his own experience in verse eight. Look at verse eight. He says, for I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me and I say to one, go, and he goes. And I say to another, come, and he comes. And I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. Jesus, I trust that you have that kind of authority in heaven and on earth. You have that kind of authority in the spiritual realm and in the natural realm. But I also trust, Jesus, that you're good because I've heard the stories about you, the reports about you, and I believe them. I know that you're a healer with great power, but I know that you also are filled with mercy and grace. So say the word, please. What's the difference between the Jewish elders' understanding of faith and the centurion's understanding of faith? The Jewish elders say, he's worthy, Jesus, so do what he asks. The centurion says, I'm unworthy, but do what I ask. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? He doesn't say, you know what? Jesus, come to think of it, I'm not worthy, so never mind. (laughs) Sorry I bothered you. No, he says, I'm unworthy, but say the word, and my servant will be healed. The difference between him and the Jewish elders is the basis that they give for asking Jesus to act. He's not asking Jesus to act based on his own moral goodness. He's asking based on the goodness and the grace of Jesus. He's not trusting in himself In his own virtue, he's trusting in Jesus. And that transfer of trust from our own worthiness, our own ability, our own goodness, our own works to the worthiness and ability and goodness and work of Jesus is what biblical faith is. That's what faith is. A transfer of trust from self to Jesus. So what does Jesus say about that? That's the final thing we wanna look at. Look at verse nine. What does Jesus have to say about this whole deal? Verse nine. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. Means he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, Jesus said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Jesus is impacted. I think even emotionally by the centurion. He's like, wow, I I mean, wow, do you guys, are you hear this? So he turns to the the people that are following him and he's gonna have like a little teaching moment. He's like, let me just interpret for y'all what you just heard. Like not even in Israel have I encountered such faith. That's not a slight against Israel, right? Because the history of Israel is filled with accounts of great faith 
Just read Hebrews chapter 11. It's example after example after example of faith. But Jesus is saying, what we've heard from the Roman centurion today is like nothing I've ever encountered. And I've, I've encountered a lot because I'm Jesus. Why is Jesus so amazed by the centurion's faith? Well, I think there's probably a lot of reasons. I'm just going to mention a few. I think for one, he's amazed because of the centurion's spiritual disadvantage as a Gentile. Like this guy didn't grow up with the scriptures. He didn't grow up in the synagogue. He didn't grow up with godly parents who taught him uh, about God. He didn't go to camp. He didn't go to youth group. He didn't go to Bible study. And yet, he has a humble faith, doesn't he? A right view of himself, a right view of Jesus. That seems to mean that the good news of Jesus really is for everyone, not just for those with a religious background. I think Jesus is also amazed because the centurion is not in the presence of Jesus, but he trusts in the power of Jesus. He sees this connection between the person of Jesus and the word of Jesus. Jesus' word has power because Jesus has authority over all things. His words are a revelation of his person, a revelation of his power. That's so encouraging for you and me who don't see Jesus in person, who are not physically in the presence of Jesus because that means his word is still living and active today. Jesus still speaks by his word today. Jesus intercedes for us. Jesus commands us. Jesus renews us by his word. And so faith trusts in his word as if he were standing right here with us. I think Jesus is also amazed because even though the centurion is rich and powerful, he's also humble and caring. He's others-centered. His faith is others-centered, isn't it? Like he comes to Jesus on behalf of his servant. I think that's really interesting. He, he actually felt his need for Jesus because he was, he was in touch with the needs of others. We, Scott shared about community. You know, if you are really in community, you find out pretty quickly that you can't solve everybody's problems. You can't. You can't meet everybody's needs. But Jesus can. And so faith takes people to Jesus. And finally, I think Jesus is amazed because the centurion's, the, the centurion's faith is simple. It's not complex. He's not like, here's my confession of the Nicene Creed. Right? Here's my understanding of the hypostatic union, whereby Jesus, being one person, also has two natures, divine and human. Right? Not, not that it's not important to know those things and believe those things, but that's not what he does. He goes to Jesus with simple, concrete beliefs. Jesus, you are powerful. Jesus, you have authority. Jesus, you are good. Help me. That's it which is encouraging to me because that means anyone can come to, to Jesus in faith. Anyone can cry out to him in faith. I want to just end by saying that um, faith always has an object. And, and the object of faith is what really matters. Right? Our culture often emphasizes the subjective nature of faith rather than the objective Nature of faith, meaning a lot of times we hear, hear people say, you know, what really matters is your sincerity. 
Like what, what really matters is how strongly you believe something or how deeply you believe something. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe it with all your heart. Like you really mean it. Problem is we can, we can believe wrong things with all our heart. Tim Keller gives a great illustration of why the object of our faith is so important. Uh, he says two mountain climbers were on a climb uh, and, and they fell down onto this narrow ledge and there were only two possible routes to get off this ledge and to get off the mountain. Uh, the, there was a little rocky outcrop on this side and, and there was a little rocky outcrop uh, on this side. Uh, and those are the only ways off this ledge. And the first climber says, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that this is the way we ought to go. Like I, I have strong faith that this is the way we, we should go. I believe it with all my heart. I believe it so sincerely. I've never believed anything so strongly. We should go this way. And the other climber says, well, I don't know. I'm not as certain, but I have, a, I have an inclination that we ought to go this way. My faith is weak on this thing, but it feels like we should go this way. And so the first climber steps out in full confidence with great faith and the rocks give way and he falls. And the, and, and the second climber with just a little bit of faith fearfully and gingerly steps out in the other direction and it's stable and it's sturdy and he's saved who was saved? The man who believed with all his heart? No. It's the man who believed in the right rock, right? It's not the strength of your faith or the perfection of your faith or the sincerity of your faith that matters the most. It's the object of your faith that matters the most. Do you believe in the right rock? Everyone believes in something to bring them secure foundation in their life. Everyone trusts in something to save them. Do you believe in the right rock? Let me just, I did not know we were gonna sing that song about Christ being our foundation and a solid rock. That was, I was blown away that God somehow put those two things together. But that's the question for us. What's our rock? The, the centurion didn't know everything about Jesus, like, but he moved toward Jesus. He moved in that direction. He heard about Jesus and he believed the reports and he moved toward him. He was like, I'm not sure, but I think maybe Jesus is the only way off this mountain. I, I think maybe Jesus is the only way to be saved and he stepped in faith toward Jesus. Won't you do the same? Won't you do the same? Jesus is strong. Jesus is good. Jesus loves you. You can trust him. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.